0: All right, join me, if you will. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 12, verse 25. And if you will stand with me, we will read this together. All right, so Acts 12, 25. And we are going to be reading through thirteen twelve. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem... When they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there, now there was in an Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Mennon, who, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tentriarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. They reached Salmas and began to preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Palmas, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alamas, the magician for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze at him and said, "'You who are full of all deceit and fraud, "'you son of the devil, you evil of all righteousness, "'you enemy of all righteousness, "'you will not cease to make crooked "'the straight ways of the Lord.'" Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for some time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Acts chapter... 13, really, I mean, with the last verse of chapter 12 there, but Acts chapter 13. And today, we begin sort of part two in the book of Acts. This is the second major section in the book of Acts, the second movement in this story. And so far... The whole narrative has been developed and built around this theme of the progression of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? in Acts 1.8, Jesus says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Samaria, to the ends of the earth. (laughs) It's beginning to take place as we're reading this story, as we're inching through this book that's going to take us quite a long time still. Uh, we have seen the gospel move from Jerusalem outward, from strictly Jewish communities to now Gentiles. It is beginning to spread, it's moving outward. The main character up until this point has predominantly been Peter. But in chapter 12, sort of concludes I mean, not that the story of Peter's concluded, he comes up elsewhere. But the, the focus of the narrative from here on out is predominantly on somebody else. Paul. Predominantly on the Apostle Paul. In fact, our passage tonight sort of marks a shift even in the way Luke talks about him, because he at the beginning of, of chapter 13, he's referenced as Saul. But he Luke makes a transition even in the way he references him. He says, Saul, who is called Paul. Second part here is beginning. Paul's going to become the leading actor in this great drama of the development of the church, of the gospel spreading. This begins the sort of the development of the apostleship of Paul. Up until this time, though he'd been called to be an apostle, uh, when he was first con- converted, when he first found Jesus on the road to Damascus, up until this point, he had never really acted as an apostle. Now, probably 11, 12 years, a decade later, after he had that encounter on the road to Damascus, he begins to fulfill this ministry that he was called to so long ago. He begins to walk out this calling as an apostle. I think as we look at this, this next section, we begin to see the Lord leading the church and moving the church in an outward fashion. It's spreading. It's moving. It's, the gospel is advancing. And in particular, in our passage tonight, we begin to see this take place. This is the first of what, if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible and you start to see Paul's missionary journeys, this is the first of them. This is the first time we begin to see Paul commissioned as a missionary, or anyone for that matter, really commissioned as a missionary. The Spirit is leading his church. The Spirit is speaking and directing is the very thing that we're praying for at 4 pm every day this summer, that the Lord would, the Spirit would lead and guide his church, direct them. I think our passage tonight, we, we learn a couple key marks or maybe even, even like preconditions. I don't, I don't necessarily like that because it sounds conditional and the Lord can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. But a couple things stand out, what it looks like or what, what's involved in being a spirit-led church. Let's jump into this. Let's look. Chapter 12. 25. we're just going to read this real quick. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and went and when they uh, sorry for when they had completed their service, bringing with them John who was called Mark 13:1. Now there were at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This whole thing... Starting out here, this whole narrative, this whole, like, launching of the church and the missionary movement that will spread throughout the whole world, look how it begins. It starts with a group of Christians in the church of Antioch, a group of believers who are simply exercising their giftings. All that we're told is that this group of Christians, some are prophets and some are teachers, They're simply doing what they're called to do. Look how this works. Barnabas and Saul, they return from Jerusalem. They've completed that work. They bring this guy, John Mark, with them. And then there's this list of five guys. Not like the burgers. Five five guys, (laughs) including Paul and Barnabas. And we're told that they're prophets and teachers. Now, I don't think it's, it's not overly clear from your English translations here, but the Greek kind of implies that the first three of them are being called prophets and the last two are teachers. So you have the prophets. You have Barnabas. We've met him several chapters ago, right? The son of encouragement. Remember, he was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to check what's going on. Now, that's Barnabas. We have this guy, Simon, who is called Niger. Biblical scholars think that it's possible that this is a, a black man from northern Africa. He's serving at the church in Antioch. It's also been suggested, I, I don't know, I mean, this is just circumstantial. There's, it, it's also been suggested that this is the same Simon Simeon is how it's spelt here, but in, in the Gospels, you meet a man named Simon from Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus. You guys remember that story? Scholars think that it's possible that there's just a, a play on language here. It might have been the same person. I don't know. Just interesting. Lucius of Cyrene. This is another North African who is living in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was a pretty pretty uh, well well-traveled city. And then you have teachers. You have this guy Menaean. He's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Potentially a member of his royal court who has found Jesus. This is not the same Herod that we read about in chapter twelve. This is a different Herod. Uh, the, this is the Herod who under uh, who under his command Jesus suffered under his command Jesus was beaten the greek here implies that this, this guy menaean grew up like a I loved this when I looked at this like a foster brother he grew up right alongside Herod as a foster brother he was related to him in sorts that like a foster child would would have been related he grew up close to the king King Herod. And then Saul, who we know as Paul. It's amazing to me here that he's only listed as a teacher. He's not, even, not called an apostle. He's, he's listed under the category of teacher. I don't even think that, that he's called a prophet here necessarily, the way the Greek w- works out. He's just a teacher in Antioch. At this point in his life, over a decade later after meeting Jesus, he's a teacher. The only gift that really had begun to manifest in his life at this point. He's expounding the Old Testament and showing the way of Jesus. This is what a teacher would have been been doing. Opening the scriptures and teaching the Messiah out of them. So what you have here really is this collection of gentlemen, this collection of guys from all sorts of walks of life, from varying different places, who make up this church. A couple guys from North Africa. You have some guy from the island of Cyprus. You've got Barnabas, who was sent by the apostles. He had that commission. You have a nobleman from an aristocratic family who grew up in the house of Herod. Probably a pretty uh, intense way to grow up. And then you have Saul of Tarsus. Remember, the the Jewish teacher, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who had this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. This is a varied group of guys. And while they were performing their gifts, while they were busy doing what the Lord had gifted them to do, what God had equipped them to do in service of the church, the spirit of God spoke. I think this is really important for us as a church. I think often people think that like you need to hear, I mean, you hear this a lot in student ministries and college age, like I need a calling from the Lord. I need to know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Sometimes people stand still (laughs) For many, many decades in their life, they don't do anything because they're waiting for a word from the Lord. They're waiting for direction and clarity on what they're supposed to do. What I love about this story is they don't, these guys don't go off into the desert somewhere, necessarily. They don't retract from everybody and hide to get direction from the Lord, they were doing the thing that they were gifted and equipped to do, serving the church, active in their life and ministry, contributing to the church, and it's in that context the Lord speaks and gives them clarity. The thing is, it's probably not necessarily going to be an audible voice. For those of you who are asking the Lord what it is that He has for you, it might be. He could do that. It's probably not necessarily going to be a prophetic word or a vision or a dream or something like that. All of that could potentially happen. But the thing is, until you get clarity, what do you do? You keep doing the thing that the Lord has put in front of you, you keep working. You keep serving. You keep contributing. It's what I love about this example here. These gentlemen were very, they were busy doing and using their gifts. They were in the, and it was in the midst of that activity that the Lord spoke, that the Holy Spirit came. Second thing that stands out to me in this first section, verse 2 While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. There was apparently already established in this church a culture of worship and fasting and prayer. They were worshiping and fasting. This wasn't something that was like, Okay, guys, we need direction for our life. We're going to call a a worship event, and we're going to worship together, and God's going to speak. This was a culture that was pre-established. That's the implication from the text. This was just a habit that the church was already in to worship and to pray and to fast. Some translations, and this is why it was so good that Brent read out of the ASV, some translations translate that word worship as ministering. They were ministering to the Lord and fasting. I think that's, a, that's a, an important thing for us, even as a church, to, to kind of wrap our brains around here, is that there was a culture of ministry to the Lord established here in Antioch. There was an environment of service to the Lord. Barnabas and the others, for sure, they ministered to each other. Right? I mean, this is the, the normal reality of the early church. They were caring for each other. And for sure, they were ministering outwards, too. They were spreading the gospel. And for sure, the people within the church ministered to each other. But here, and probably most importantly, they're ministering to the Lord. The primary focus of their ministry was to the Lord, this is our, our first job. This is our first role our, is of, a, of any servant of God is to minister to Him, to worship Him, to serve Him. In doing this, they, they actually they did the service of a priest under the new covenant. They did what Paul would say later in Romans 12. They offered their bodies as living sacrifices. They, they did the work of a priest. Ministering to the Lord means to do whatever pleases him and honors him. This is much more than just a song that you sing. This is a lifestyle laid down to honor and glorify King Jesus. It includes worship and praise and prayer and listening to and honoring him. But it goes beyond that to acts of service even. And when you come on a Sunday, when you come here Sunday evening or afternoon, when you come, we come to minister to the Lord. We come to serve the Lord and to minister before him, to, to give something to him. We come with an offering to give. We serve him. We adore him. We worship him. That's part of why we sing. Singing is an expression of that which you adore. Everything you do can be viewed in the eye of worship. Worship. Who are you glorifying in the things you do? Who's getting the glory in the things that you do day in and day out? Is it to make yourself look good or or your boss or your your spouse? Who's getting the glory? Are you glorifying the Lord? Who are you serving truly? Truly? What's the motivation in your heart? Are you serving others? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving the Lord? This is just a helpful thing to put things into perspective. So they had established a culture of worship and service and ministry to the Lord that seemingly went beyond just duty. This was not like a regimented prayer meeting. This was a passion that was way beyond just the normal rhythms of the Jewish prayer cycle. It's not a scheduled worship time or a called fast necessarily. This the implication is this was their normal life. The normal Christian life. And the reality is that's the kind of community that the Lord speaks to and leads and moves in. A community where the focus is him, worshiping him, serving him. Not only were they worshiping, it's really important to point out they were fasting. They were fasting. What exactly does it look like for them to be worshiping and fasting? Or in verse 3, again, they, they pray and they fast. What does that look like? They weren't fasting for health reasons. This is not like some fad diet where they're, they're intermittent fasting. They're not trying to lose weight here. In the Bible, fasting is always marked by a deep sense of concern, an understanding of the reality of what's happening. And so the movement of that is fasting. It means the idea behind fasting is to forego something that is good or normal for the sake of something that is better or more valuable. It means that you're willing to forego the normal demands of life in order to consecrate or concentrate for a time to find out what God wants and to pray that what he wants will be accomplished. Fasting in a nutshell like I said is to to not do something good to do something better prayer and worship it's always accompanied with prayer and worship. Fasting in and of itself is just starving yourself. It's not fun. The fact that they were fasting here this was not like a normal practice necessarily there are normal fasts that were developed within the church. But this seems to be different. The fact that they were fasting, I think, indicates that they were praying and expecting. They were expecting God to do something. They were, they were longing to see God do something. There was a deep dependence and a hunger to see God do something. This is true of any spiritual, any, any movement of God throughout history. True spiritual leaders, you don't just run on your own ideas. There has to be this sort of dependence, prayer, seeking God. This is really important because we know these guys are incredibly gifted, right? That's what Luke already said. These are prophets and teachers. This is Barnabas and Paul. These are gifted gentlemen, They could probably go do things amazing on their own ability. And yet, they're fasting. They're fasting. Churches who do something great and exalt Jesus passionately, this is true all the time. They seek Jesus in dependence and expectation. They know that in and of themselves they can do nothing good. So, this story begins in prayer and worship and fasting. And then, after Barnabas and Saul are selected, what do they do again? They pray and they fast. I love that because it's it's saturated. The whole thing is drenched in prayer, it's saturated in it. So, while they were worshiping and fasting. While they were doing that, the Lord spoke. And we're not told how he spoke. There's a group of prophets there, so it's possible that one of them had like a word from the Lord or something. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It could have just been that he spoke as he speaks so often in sort of a still, small, small, voice and inner certainty that you have to where you just know or unanimous certainty. I, I, I kind of like that, the way that, that works where, and this happens often even in like our marriage where we're praying about something and we just both know this is the way the Lord's leading. It's not like we talk about it necessarily. We, we, hey, I feel like this is what we're supposed to do and we both are in agreement on that. This happens amongst the elders as we're praying. like We just all have this unanimous thing. That's how you know that the Lord is speaking. It's one way. A deep conviction that's shared by everyone in the group that the Spirit is leading. So he speaks to these guys And he leads them, and let's look at verse 2 here. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Set apart. Notice two elements here. First of all, it's the Lord who does this. His sovereign choice. He chose these two. Who, who said to set them apart? It's the Holy Spirit. And yet the church affirms and confirms it. He said, Set them apart. Set apart for, Barna- set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Stands out to me that he didn't. He didn't tell the church what the work was. He didn't give clarity even on what they were supposed to do. There's, there's somewhat of like a, an Abraham moment here. We don't find out until we read on in this book what they did. But the Spirit spoke to these guys, and he laid this deep concern on them. And then the church says... They set them aside for this purpose. They set them apart for this purpose. Set apart is an important phrase in the Bible. It carries the implications of being holy. The word holy literally means to be set apart. Not necessarily just for the sake of being different, or unique amongst a population, but it's like the items in the temple, the the utensils of the temple that were set apart for temple use. They're holy. They were separated from the mundane normal things and, and placed into use in the temple for the sake of worship. It's important, I think, before Paul and Barnabas really could do anything, before Paul's even called an apostle here, there's a setting apart that has to take place. I think there's, there's something to this that if we separate ourselves to God, if we, if we do that, the implication, the drawed out implication, is that we're saying no to other things. If you take a utensil, a a bowl, and you separate it to be used in the temple as holy, what you're doing is saying this can't be used for normal purposes. This is only to be used for something sacred. And that's what's happening here. They're set apart to be used for something specific, something that the Lord wanted to do. And I think that's, you, you can't really... You can't really say yes to God's call on your life until you're willing and able to say no to lots of other options. That's the reality of it. You have to be willing to just focus and say no to a lot of other things. Verse three. After fasting and praying, again... They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, talking about missionaries, he says that churches need to avoid both individualism and institutionalism. Here, let me me expound on what he says. This story doesn't say that Paul comes up to the church and says, the Lord's leading me to Italy and I need to go. God's calling me to Spain, guys, and I need to go. That's, that's individualism. That's, that's a little bit separate from what's happening here. But neither does it say that the church says, you know what, you two, the role has ticked. It's your turn, we're sending you, you're going. You have no choice. That would be an institution. What we see here is that the Spirit sent them. The church simply affirmed and supported their calling. This is really important. The Spirit gave the word. The Spirit directed them, and the congregation, the church affirmed the mission and supported them. Missionaries should be sent and directed by the Spirit and then supported specifically by the church. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who sends. Holy Spirit leads and directs, confirmed and affirmed and supported by the church community around you. It's also really important to point out who did they send? Who did the Holy Spirit send? Out of that list of guys, who do we know throughout the rest of history? The two that got sent. They sent their best. They didn't send sort of the outcasts or the the, the guys that weren't quite making it or made the whole group feel uncomfortable. They sent their very best, Paul and Barnabas. That means that the church in Antioch was stepping out in this tremendous faith. Barnabas had been sent from Jerusalem to help this church, and he had personally gone out and brought Saul, to help. And it's those two that are sent out of this church. They're making a sacrifice to send these guys. They're giving up key leaders in obedience to God to go serve others. And this is the reality of the church. The church will always be looking out. So the Lord takes these two high-capacity leaders, and he sets them apart, sets them aside for this work, even though the the nature of that work is not even clearly described here. I think this chapter reminds us that as a community, as a church, that we must support, develop, and send high-capacity leaders out into the mission field. It's part of what I think we're supposed to do here. It's part of why parenting, intentional parenting, is so important. We should be developing, culturing, raising up, discipling, and sending out high-capacity gospel leaders out into the mission field. Wherever they're going. That's the the call. The Great Commission is while you're going, wherever you're going, right? That we would raise up and train high-capacity leaders for the work of missions. This is what a missional church does, and this is the pattern that we reflect, or that we hope to reflect. And we hope to, we see this mirrored even in the, the missionary heart of the Father, who sent heaven's best, his very own Son, Christ, for the good of the nations who were against him. David Livingston said this, God had only one son and he was a missionary. The father sent that son so that we may be saved and he now sends us like his son so that others can come to know him. Second part of this passage, and I don't have time to really get into it, Second part of this passage, we see as they begin in this journey. We see this this moving out of what it began to look like. And I'm just going to kind of like breeze through this real quick. Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They're commissioned on this first missionary journey. You probably have a map of it in the back of your Bible. They go down to Seleucia, which is on the coast, probably because it was a port city, Then they sail to an island called Cyprus. They begin this missionary work on this island of Cyprus. They start in the synagogues. They go find the synagogues of the diaspora that were sent out. They find the Jewish population and they begin there. The the synagogues had this custom of receiving anybody who was an educated person to speak to address them at the Sabbath meeting. So Paul would use this as his normal way of doing missions. He'd go and he'd find the synagogues. I think it's worth noting here that that if if we're thinking and acting like missionaries, look what Paul did. He went to a community that already was receptive, that already was pre-established a way that they would hear him. Missionaries call this people of peace. When you go into a community and you find the people who are already asking the right questions, they're already thinking towards the right direction, they might be opposed to Jesus, but they're not opposed to you. You find these people and that's where you start. And that's what Paul does throughout the rest of this book. You're going to see him start in the synagogues, and he's going to work his way out from there. So as they're going through the island, they come across this proconsul, this this uh, Roman official. A Roman proconsul means that he was responsible for an entire provident province, and he answered to the Roman Senate. all roman provinces were divided into two classes those who required troops and those that did not those who did not require troops to administer administrate them they were ruled by the senate through proconsuls so the island of cyprus didn't require the heavy hand that judea did this proconsul called for barnabas and saul they called for them And wanted to hear the word of God. So Paul and Barnabas are ministering and the proconsul wants to hear from them. Wants to hear the word. And they meet this guy, Elimus, the sorcerer, the magician. That's his name at least as we have it in Greek, which means magician. That's the Greek word for magician. But his Hebrew name, it seems, was Bar-Jesus. We get the hint that Luke didn't even really want, he didn't feel comfortable even calling him that. He just called him by his Greek name or Greek word for magician. Bar-Jesus means the son of Jesus. The son of Jesus. In the Hebrew culture, it would be normal... To call yourself the son of someone you designated yourself as a follower of. So when this guy calls himself Bar-Jesus, it's possible that he's claiming that he was a follower of Jesus. But what he taught was in direct opposition. It was completely contrary to what Jesus taught. He was, in other words, he was like what would develop in a long line of antichrist figures. Those who would seize on the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, do things in the name of Christianity that go ultimately completely against the teachings of Jesus, utterly opposed to his teaching. This guy, he's attempting to frustrate the gospel, the work of the gospel. He's, attend- he's, he's in opposition to what God is, do- is trying to do. Frustrating the miss- missionary efforts. He opposes them. And I think that's an important thing we have to realize. That if we are living as a missional church, if we're doing the thing that we're called to do and following the, the Lord Jesus as he sends us on mission, there's gonna be opposition. There's gonna be those who oppose us. Spurgeon said this, you should not be surprised or shaken by opposition. Wherever there is likely to be great success, the open door and the the open door and both the opposing adversaries will be found. He says this, he says, If there is no adversaries, you may fear that there will be no success. A boy cannot get his kite up without wind which drives against that kite, Spurgeon says. There'll be opposition. That's just how things work. And look at how Paul responds. This is one of my favorite little things. This amazes me. But Saul, and here's this transition, who is called Paul, Filled with the Spirit, Luke says this, this, is, this is God, <laughs> speaking through him, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all, unrighteous, of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul's not playing around. It's pretty direct. You call yourself a son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil, he says. The enemy of all things right with God. Full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul's there with a mission at hand to make straight the way of the Lord. The work of an apostle even is to make straight the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus. And here's this opposer who is making the ways crooked and hard and opposing the work of God. We've seen this several times now, and you're going to see it even more as we get through the book of Acts. There's this mix of grace and truth that I think we need to work on finding this balance where, where, yes, Paul is here ultimately as a missionary bringing good news. He's there for the sake of love. He's there for the sake of compassion to help people, to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus. He's compelled by the gospel. And yet, when opposed, he spoke with clarity and truth. He directly confronts the opposer. Look what happens here. Paul was declaring the straight paths of Jesus. He's, he's declaring the way of Jesus. This guy was teaching a, a deviation. He was teaching a crooked way that was trying to lead and mislead this pro Paul said what he said. He confronts him. And then he speaks a curse over him. He's so confident. Paul's so confident in the call of God on his life. In the power of God to confirm and affirm the mission that he's on. That he's not playing around. I think we need some of this clarity and confidence in what God's doing. There's no, no playing around, no messing around with, well, maybe they're okay, maybe that's okay. Being clear, honest, direct. He calls out the opposer and God shows up. Verse 12. Here's the result. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I guess I skipped the the verse there that he was blind he was made blind the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the lord he hears the clarity and the truth of the gospel but not just that backed up by authority of paul and he's convinced convinced utterly He saw what had happened. He saw something in Paul and something in this magician, something unique in both of them. He saw in the magician sin and its resulting blindness, ultimately. And he saw in Paul courage and confidence. Here was a man of conviction, bold in his belief, confident in what he believed in, willing to make a stand even for what he believed in. So being astonished with, these, with the, uh, the teaching of the Lord, he comes to Jesus. I love that it says his astonishment was at the teaching of the Lord. Not at the fact that the guy was made blind, but at the teaching of the word. At the, the beauty of the gospel, he was astonished. Not the miraculous work that just happened in front of him. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? We want to be a spirit-led church. We want to be a church like this church in Antioch. Directed and led by the church. Not, not just a, a, a social club that gets together every, every week. Not just a group that shares similar worldview or similar politics or or whatever that is, want to raise our kids together. We want to be spirit-led. We want to be sent by the Spirit as missionaries to Sonoma County and beyond. And looking at this passage, I think the challenge for us, a couple things. Like I said, use your gifts. Use your gifts. Don't sit on them and wait passively on the, on the side. Be active. Serve where you are now. Don't sit on the sidelines waiting for some dramatic vision from heaven to guide you. Serve where you are and be faithful, and the Lord will speak. He'll direct you. Do that. In a spirit of worship, with fasting and prayer. Do that as an act of service and worship of the Lord. Not yourself and not those around you, but of the Lord. With fasting and with prayer. Do it as service to the Lord. When you come here week in and week out, As we gather in your story and table groups, or you get together, worship and prayer nights, whatever it is when we get together, contribute, bring something. Come with a heart of worship for the Lord, with a heart of sacrifice. With fasting and with prayer. The fasting piece to me is, the, the question is, are we burdened enough? Are we, are we aware of the need around us enough that it causes us to pray? That's what fasting is, right? To, to have a concern that, that affects you so much that you're willing to not eat to pray for something. In a nutshell, that's what fasting is. Throughout history, this is how revivals and renewals have happened. People have become so aware of how desperate the community was in need of God showing up that they begin to pray and fast. And God shows up. A group of people, usually small, so burdened with the state of reality that they pray. Are we burdened enough to pray? To let go of good things for the sake of something better? To forego the good, even right things. To pursue exactly what God wants to do in this community. Not that you twist God's arm. That's the the flip side here of fasting is that people think they can manipulate God somehow. You can't manipulate God. You can't twist his arm. But the reality is, is, is when a church gets saturated in worship and fasting and prayer, we begin to change. Not, we don't change God's mind. We begin to change. We begin to fall in line with what he wants, more aligned with what he's doing in our community. This is our call. This is what we're about. We're about making disciples who make disciples. we're called to be missionaries who release missionaries who send missionaries we're called to be a church who's planting churches this is this is what the church is all about raising up leaders sending our best giving our best for the sake of the mission in a context of prayer and worship With that, I'm going to pray. Worship team, come up. God, I thank you for this first example of this intentional sent missionaries. Previously, they had been sent because of persecution and scattering of natural moving. But at this point, they're intentionally sent because your spirit moved in their midst. Because your spirit prompted them. God, I'm asking, we ask that in this fellowship, God, it refuge, God, that you would speak. That your spirit would lead us and guide us. That your spirit would direct us. That we would follow you. That we would serve you and worship you. That we would lay our lives down for you. That we would be a community of worship, of prayer and fasting. That we would be a community of sending missionaries, the very best from amongst us. Jesus, we love you and we worship you. Amen.